Transport by Alex Ames. You are listening to The Transport, a sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Kumiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. Hello everyone to episode 2 of The Transport. Hello everywhere you are listening from, whether it's your commute in the evening while hiking or biking or exercising or munching your sandwich. You are listening to The Transport, my sci-fi action thriller audiobook podcast, written and performed by Alex Ames. That's me. If you like what you hear and like to support me, go over to your favorite web store and buy the book. Search for Alex Ames, The Transport, and you'll find it. It's available as ebook almost everywhere and paperback in many online stores. If you like what you hear, tell others about it and force them to subscribe to the podcast. The podcast is available for listening or for download on my website alexames.net or on most major podcasting platforms. Also, check out my other books. I write mostly thrillers and mysteries and some young adult, so check it out. On my website you'll find the whole lot. Point your browser to www.alexames.net. Enough said, let's get into the story. When we last left our heroes, Herbert Frommer, the facility manager of biotech firm Legion Analytics, just attacked his boss in a secret basement lab with a syringe. U.S. Army transport specialist Cena Washington has been commanded to appear at a secret Cold War facility in the New Mexico desert, where promptly she gets into trouble with some former teammates. And Charles Norman, a lowly CIA analyst, gets called up to appear before the president of the US of A to explain himself why he managed to move half the army for a secret transport into the New Mexico desert that no one in command knows about. And here we go. The Transport by Alex Ames Chapter 4 Leo There goes my hero Watch him as he goes There goes my hero He's ordinate The phone disconnected from the car stereo as Leo removed the key from the ignition lock yeah, I'm ordinary. Welcome to another day of Leo Parker, ordinary data crunching workhorse. He put his head onto the driving wheel and breathed in and out several times. He simply couldn't bring himself to quit his job. The pay was too good, but he couldn't bring himself to step into that dreaded building either. Legion Analytics was in a shitty location, New Mexico's radioactive middle, and the work was duller than dull. But Leo liked money. 
What's up, Leo? Wendell Ram pulled beside him and shouted from his open-top sports car, a last year's model BMW. There goes my hero, man, Leo replied. Wendell and he had started four years ago on the same day. He in the data analytics department and Wendell in the biosequencer lab. Guess who had already climbed two steps up the extraordinary career ladder? That's right, my man. Another day in paradise. Wendell closed the roof of his car while he sang. And it never rains in the Southern California. Wendell, what would I give for your motivation? You are Mr. Sunshine. Both men walked up to the main entrance, a stylish glass cube structure set before the old brick-and-mortar building, and chatted about last night's basketball playoff game. This was the time when everyone came to work and there was a steady stream of parking cars and people entering the building. Suddenly, a loud motor announced its presence on the campus, so loud that all heads turned to the source. A giant old-style Harley fnap-fnapped onto the parking lot. The motor gargled and took the remaining momentum to roll the last 20 yards right up to the entrance stairs and stopped in front of the fire hydrant on a section clearly marked with red stripes on the asphalt. Both men stood agape. I'm in love, Wendell croaked. Jesus, they are hot, 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 Leo conceded. The rider was a large woman, easily 6'2", in black leather jeans, cowboy boots and a black biker jacket zipper pulled up. Though she wore no helmet, her long blonde hair was perfectly in place despite the previous drive. She was in her mid-forties and looked like a former photo model that had aged well. Very well. Behind her, on the bike, sat a younger woman, maybe twenty years old, shoulder-long jet black hair, tight jeans and also a black leather biker jacket. She moved her legs gracefully off the bike in slow motion and gave her surrounding quite a show. The girl waved her black hair once and not a single strand looked out of place. All commuters stood frozen in whatever they were doing and stared at the two women. The men in sexual awe, the females in a mixture of envy and disgust. An overzealous security guard came beelining from the door towards them. Ladies, he was taken aback because both were looking good. You, you, you can't park your, your bike here, he whined. Instead of an answer, the large blonde nodded at the young woman, restarted the Harley, revved it up twice and made a lazy illegal turn against the one-way signage and left the campus slaloming around two honking cars, the sound fading into the distance. The black-haired beauty looked lost for a moment as she glanced at the point where the blonde had vanished, checked her watch and took in the stairs and glances from the crowd. She then walked up the stairs to the lobby entrance, ignoring the flustered security guard, turning to Leo and Wendell instead. Christmas comes early, Wendell whispered, 
and Leo thought desperately of something witty to ask the girl. Can one of the gentlemen show me the way to the HR department? The black-haired girl had a mild, soft voice with a slight southern accent. Leo couldn't get out a single word, his tongue stuck in his dry mouth. Leo, you are such a loser. Wendell took the opportunity, the slick charmer. I can help you, no problem at all. The girl checked Wendell with a curious look and gave him a dazzling smile. That's mighty nice. I am Eva. She held out her hand. Man, just to touch her hand once. Wendell took it, but did not shake it, just held on to it as if he was on a date. And the lady on the bike was your big sister? Wendell already had threesome fantasies. She's my mother, the girl replied. I start today at Legion Analytics. Can you show me the way to the HR department? Leo swore that she had glanced at the logo over the entrance before answering. Absolutely, let me lead the way. Wendell steered her towards the entrance away from Leo. Every step of the way, all eyes were on her until she had vanished inside. Life returned to the onlookers. Everyone started talking about the two women and their grand entrance. Leo shook his head to clear it and continued his way. The security guard came up to him, shaking his head. She drove down the one way in the wrong direction, he complained. Leo had to smile. There were people more pathetic than him and further down the totem pole. Back to the chain gang. Chapter 5 Herbert Herbert was surprised at Carling's fast reaction. The man must have had some basic self-defense training. Herbert had anticipated that Carling would jerk away from the syringe, so he had grabbed the man's upper arm with his other hand to keep him still. But Carling made a jump forward which caused the syringe to slip out of the arm before the plunger was completely down. How much did he get? Half the dosage? Did this mean double the time until the knockout effect would set in? Herbert's mind raced. To his horror, Carling did not stop. By stepping away, he started screaming too. What the frack, asshole, what's this? He held his upper arm, feeling for the injury. Carling's eyes fell on the needle tip of the syringe, still in Herbert's right hand. Carling charged him. Another prepared self-defense maneuver, punching forward with the balls of his hands, right, left, right, left, while stepping into Herbert's proximity. The first two blows were harmless, still an arm's length away, but then Herbert needed to walk backwards to avoid damage, his brain in overdrive, information starting to sweep into his consciousness in sort of rapid-fire commands. Herbert definitely was no fighter and had no idea what to do. This was not part of the plan. Blow after blow rained onto him, hitting his breastbone, his face, his stomach, 
Herbert raised his hands to protect his throat and, ouch, received one against his lower lip, which started to bleed. He stumbled backwards into the table with the ready-placed syringe collection, the whole thing toppling over, syringes raining on the floor. But Carling made a mistake. Instead of simply running away for help, he now started kicking at Herbert too, who scrambled backwards through the spilled table content, crunching plastic underneath his feet. More out of desperation, Herbert kicked back, connected with Carling's shinbone. A grunt of pain, but the man stopped his attack. Both men stared eye to eye, puffing. Slowly, Carling showed the first symptom of the roofie's half-dosage. He blinked several times and lowered his hands, wavering. Herbert's right hand acted as if detached from the rest of his body. He gave the groggy man a punch into the stomach, nothing violent, just to stop the fighting. Carling made an oof sound as air escaped his lungs, tried to turn away, but only moved in slow motion. Herbert consolidated his upper hand with a follow-up kick into the groin. Carling whimpered and fell to the floor, both hands covering the source of pain. Herbert thought about a kick against the head, more out of anger than of necessity, but remembered the instructions. Don't damage the converts. He grabbed a new syringe from the floor, saw that the needle was bent, searched for another one, also bent, and started frantically searching for an undamaged one. Carling tried getting up, was already on all fours, dragging himself towards the exit door. What? 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 He muttered as if in trance, still processing the situation. Herbert found a pristine syringe, removed the protector, and unceremoniously plunged it into Carling's behind. The man dragged along for a few more feet and finally collapsed for good. Game over. Herbert breathed in and out, still on the floor, undamaged. Now continue the plan, Herb. Everyone counts on you. He surveyed the damage from the fight. Oh man, the table with the medication. A lot of syringes had bent needles or were crushed. Bad, very bad. He had planned to use them all to subside his intended victims and bring them around again. Clever man, he chided himself. Thirty people, thirty syringes, well prepared, and now most of them ruined. And of course, Herbert, you have no spares. To obtain the drug already had been risky. Herbert had to scout shady bars and nightclubs and had paid black market prices to buy date-rape drug dosages. As Legion Analytics had nothing of this sort in its own chemical cabinets. And the large quantities needed had meant he had to go out and buy many times, noticed by the critical eyes of some of his dealers. Luckily, he hadn't run into an undercover DEA operation or had a dealer snitching on him. Herbert undressed Carling, starting with shirt and tee. The boxers went last and his boss lay naked now. Herbert dragged him through the room underneath the arms. He had never trained for this, a trial and error with a living and breathing but completely lifeless real person. To the bathtub. 
He tried Carling's leg first, putting them over the rim. But when he tried to lift the upper body, grabbing under the arms, the leg slipped out again. He turned and tried to lift the upper body first, but the bathtub itself was in the way. Stupid game, Herbert panted, Carling's naked skin slipping through his hands. After two more tries, Herbert found the right approach. The man had to take his bath ass first, lift him up, seat him on the side walls of the tub, carefully dip the behind, turn the upper body so that the head still was above the waterline. The tub had a comfortable armrest. The upper body could rest upright after the elbows were positioned correctly. Finally, the legs. The right leg already hung outside of the tub, over the right wall. So Herbert only needed to take the left leg and move it into the same position on the other side. He stepped back to admire the result. Carling looked as if he was ready to give a water birth. The man's eyes were mere slits, groggy from the drug, but he might be seeing what was going on. Good man, I heard it will only hurt a moment. Herbert walked to one of the computer workstations, typed in a command. An interface let him select the needed glass tube container. Herbert referred to a prepared checklist lying beside the computer to make sure that he did not mess up any of the necessary steps. He typed, ready to convert. An immediate answer came back, understood, careful, no damage. Of course. Begin sequence. Herbert continued with the checklist, speaking aloud to keep things straight for himself. Select pot. Shut down nutrition. Shut down life support. Shut down links. Shut down power. Disconnect. One of the pods on the first row of glass tubes gave a little noise as if a high pressure hose had been loosened. Perfect. Herbert approached the glass tube, physically disconnected the various tubes and cables on the top and bottom. Ready to roll. Herbert crossed the room, came back with a serving cart on four wheels that held twelve prepared holes on top. He heaved down the disconnected tube with some effort and placed it carefully into one of the holes on the cart and rolled it over to the bathtub. He unscrewed the top of the glass tube and poured the whole content into the lower end of the bathtub. Something greenish flashed through the milky fluid and vanished in the tub. For a moment, nothing happened. Then the milky fluid started moving, as if a large fish was passing just underneath the surface. Suddenly, Carling's body jerked violently several times and fluid splashed over the sides of the tub. Herbert stood behind the man and held him steady at the shoulders to keep the body in position. It will be over soon, Herbert cooed to the semi-conscious man. Between Carling's legs, the splashing continued. And the milky fluid turned red. Alex Ames here. 
sorry for the little interruption. This story will continue momentarily. If you like a good thriller, check out my 2020 novel COVID Trouble. COVID Trouble is a novel in my ongoing troubleshooter series featuring the corporate troubleshooter Paul Trouble. COVID Trouble takes place in Paris, France after the first lockdown of 2020, just when life seems to normalize again during the worldwide life-threatening pandemic. And France is getting ready for some well-earned summer vacations. Someone is poisoning supermarkets with the virus. Is it a lunatic? Is it a terrorist act? Paul Trouble will find out. A lot of bullets will fly. There are car chases, gunfights, rooms full of dead people, deadly fire traps and many, many, many ways to die. COVID Trouble is available as ebook at most online retailers and as paperback at Amazon and some other e-tailers. Check it out, it's a ride. It's inspired by the current events of that crazy, crazy year 2020. COVID Trouble is the name, Alex Ames, the author. That being said, by the book. And now, let's jump back into the transport. Chapter 6 Cena. Mac and Cena stared like animals caught in the headlights. Rule 1. Never get caught by an officer. Gorsuch handled the situation for them. No problems here, sir. I was demonstrating my famous Cossack double death blow. When Genghis Khan invades the US, we might call up on you as an instructor, Kimmick commented. At ease, everyone. He reminded the group about the forgotten protocol. He stepped aside and presented a serious-looking guy in fatigues, heavily armed in full army ranger's desert outfit. His face was hard, with piercing green eyes that radiated dominance. This is Major Bristol, army rangers. He and his team will take care of security. Eddie's team. Bristol not only looked serious, he sounded it too, short and clipped and with a volume that filled the giant hall. I know exactly as much as you do, zilk, zero. But when they call my team, it usually involves hair-raising stuff. So brace yourself for a missing hydrogen bomb, mad terrorists in a kindergarten or a third world dictator abduction. No one was sure whether the major meant it or was joking. Most important advice, when things go haywire, do not get shot by one of us. How many men do you have, Major? Mac asked. He still panted from the interrupted fight and the right side of his face was scratched and dusty. We were asked to come prepared for the unknown. The transport distance had been given to me as around 100 miles. There are various layers of security and my team is responsible for the direct security of the transport. I command 20 men on the ground for the transport, Bristol explained. Outer layers are handled by our friends from the Air Force, with two Apache choppers and two belt troop carriers for medium-range control. Two Super Hornet fighters take the extended-range security in the air at all times. 
Fighter planes as backup? Sina asked disbelievingly. What part of come prepared haven't you understood, Sergeant? Someone takes our mission pretty seriously. Bristol cocked his head at her. His eyes betrayed nothing. Two fighters should do it, thank you, Major, Sina conceded, staring straight into the man's eyes. That would be the day when a ranger could stare her down. Glad we settled it, Bristol said. Kimmick looked at his watch. Our briefing is about to start. Washington, MacDonald, you're with us. Rest of the team, carry on your preps. Be ready for anything they throw our way. And with a glance at Bristol, hydrogen bomb or dictator. The four soldiers started towards the side wall of the huge cave hangar, where a set of doors were set into the rock, perhaps leading to the left hangar. Isn't it peculiar that no one of us knows the mission? Sina asked the men around her. My commanding officer didn't know either when he sent me here, Kimmick shrugged. We're about to find out, I guess. Perhaps it is the last unicorn and we are supposed to bring it to the Albuquerque Zoo? Mac muttered. Must be a big unicorn, Sina pointed back at the motorized football field behind them. A whole herd? Mac shrugged. Shoot me now, transport specialists and comedians, Bristol commented from behind. They reached the steel doors. A red light shone over the frame and the camera stared at them from above. Kimmick saluted briefly. A grey-haired man in civilian clothes opened, three-day beard, around seventy-five years old, thin, deep-lined face, but extremely agile and intelligent eyes. Ah, the gentleman, his eyes fell on Sina, and the lady, who are here to help us out. Sina almost quipped. Yes, you called about the clock toilet. But there was a certain tension in the air and she kept mum. And you are? Bristol asked. Dr. Simmons, I used to be the scientific lead on site, but not anymore. These days I'm a mere caretaker. Been here long? Sina asked. He scratched his head as if to think hard. Started about 40 years ago. 40 years? Caretaker of what? Sina found the whole situation a bit ridiculous. It's too crazy to explain, so I let you see it first, for you to believe. Then Dr. Nauman will brief you. The doctor turned and let them through the steel door, locked it up again, and the team followed through brightly lit passageways some looking like regular corridors in any army building, some cut into the stone of the mountain. It smelled of damp rock, mold and gasoline. Simmons gave a running commentary as they walked. All that you see has been built from 1953 to 54. Two years, lots of labor and even more dynamite. Flown in from all over the country. The people, not the dynamite. The Cold War made it possible, of course. Just another bomber base tucked away in the New Mexico desert. There were so many tests here, space enough, hiding in plain sight. 
I even stationed a squadron in the other hangars for a while. Boring like hell, but good cover. Another steel door came up, and Simmons opened it. Total blackness behind it. Sina immediately felt that something was off. A presence in the blackness. A force. Beside her, Bristol seemed to feel it too, and his weapon made the way from behind his back into his hand in one smooth motion, the click of the safety switch echoing from within the nothingness. Mac fell back to last in line, his survival instincts setting in. Simmons raised his hands. No need to shoot, the ricochet might cause unintended harm. He walked through as if at home and the soldiers had no excuse not to do the same. Let me find the switch. We don't use it very often anymore, not since we decided to stop investigating. No need to feed the beast. The scientist gave a chuckle that, under the circumstances, sounded a little mad. <laughs> and, and, and remember, all this is very hush-hush. Never talk about this to anyone, not even your commanding officers. Simmons vanished into the dark, his right hand outstretched, tapping the wall. Man, I am glad that you're taking the object out of my hair, looking forward to, forward to my retirement. Where was that switch? Is that guy for real? Sina thought. The hangar was dark, the doorway behind them the only source of light. But Sina sensed the presence of the unknown thing on her body. It was like an air draft tucking at her hair and skin, pulling at each atom of her body, an invisible force pulling her further inside the hangar, towards... towards something. She looked left and right and saw her companions experience the same discomfort. Bristol had an extremely intense look on his face and Cena worried that he might shoot before Simmons could switch on the light. Kimmick, on the other hand, looked tense but expectantly into the darkness. Mac was still one step behind the doorway, putting his safety first. The doctor's voice came from the right. Got it. Fiat looks, my friends. The hangar lights clicked on. An endless sky of flickering neon tubes bathed the hangar in brightness and revealed a same-sized cave hanger as the one next door. Their eyes adjusted for a second before they saw the reason why they were here. What the... Bristol muttered. Jesus, was Max's response from behind. Kimmick said nothing, just stared. In the middle of the hangar stood a huge, pitch-black object. Sina whispered the thought that must have been in the minds of her three co-soldiers too. This object is not from here. This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. 
If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. And again, my shameless self-promoting plug, if you liked it so far and can't bear the suspense, buy the book. If you can bear the suspense, buy the book. And another shameless self-promotion, if you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too, feel free to contact me at alex.aims.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at alexaimswriting, one word. The middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you. And that's it, for real. Wherever you are, whoever you are, thank you, take care, I hear you next time. This is Alex Ames, this was The Transport, over and out.